Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. There's much to talk about this week with lots of news emanating from Washington and around the world. Later in the show, I'll give you my take on Trump, Comey, Mueller, and the Russia investigation. And I'll have a terrific panel to dig into those same issues. But first, I want to bring in my colleague, Jim Shudo, CNN's chief national security correspondent, who is monitoring President Trump's trip to the Middle East, as well as the Iranian elections. Again, Thank I'll you. be back in a bit. But Jim, what is the latest? Thank you, Fareed. We, we are awaiting the first big moment of the president's trip. He is set to deliver any moment now a speech about Islam. And this is not just any American president speaking on Islam. This is the president who told Anderson Cooper during the campaign that he thought Islam hated America. And he will do so in Saudi Arabia, the country that is home to Islam's two most sacred places, Mecca and Medina, sending a message that we believe will differ sharply from his previous statements on the Muslim faith. I want to bring in now my panel to discuss Robin Wright. She's a journalist, scholar who knows the Middle East just about better than any other American. Vali Nas is a scholar and former top State Department official who is now dean of the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. Elliot Abrams, he oversaw U.S. Middle East policy in the George W. Bush administration. He's now at the Council on Foreign Relations. In other words, we got a lot of brain power and a lot of experience in the Middle East to discuss the president's speech. Uh, Robin, I want to begin with you. Uh, the speech, and we have some excerpts now, speak uh, of something of a different message than we've heard from Donald mm -hmm. Trump before on Islam. Uh, certainly not saying Islam hates America. How is that kind of message likely to be received in Saudi Arabia today? Is it a credible message? Well, it'll depend a lot on what happens after President Trump leaves the Middle East. Does he stick to the kind of language he's using in the kingdom that tries to reach out to the Islamic world, tries to heal divisions, tries to create a new coalition with which the United States can engage on its big foreign policy challenges, dealing with ISIS, uh, dealing with Iran, helping promote the Arab-Israeli peace process. But it is clear that this language is a 180-degree flop, flip-flop from what he had said during the campaign and the kind of actions he's taken since uh, he was inaugurated in the travel ban and in using terms like <coughs> radical Islamic terrorism. This is a term that made some of the, those at the White House, including his national security advisor, very uncomfortable. And H.R. Uh, McMaster particularly campaigned hard to try to get him to stop using that term. He is not using it, as far as we know, in his speech in the kingdom today. Uh, and he's trying to mobilize uh, an important part of the world, energy-rich, an important geostrategic part of the world. Uh, to work with him. The, I think the leaders probably welcome the idea of working with President Trump. They see him as uh, not interested in democracy as much as he is in stability in the region. And that, of course, resonates with many of these conservative regimes. Uh, the question is, well, how is this going to play out in the streets? A part of the world which went through the Arab Spring in 2011 to try to challenge these autocratic regimes and feels very uh, unhappy now because of high unemployment, limited political rights, 
and may not be uh, may not view President Trump as as kindly as the leaders who are with him today. As we've been listening to you, we've been seeing some of the crowd gathered there, including uh, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law. Earlier, we saw Ivanka Trump there traveling with President Trump as well. I want to read one excerpt from the speech that we've been provided with by the White House prior to the president delivering it. We will make decisions based on real-world outcomes, not inflexible ideology. We will be guided by the lessons of experience, not the confines of rigid thinking. And wherever possible, we will seek gradual reforms, not sudden intervention. Valinas, you spend a lot of time in the region. This, of course, is a president who, beyond his rhetoric during the campaign, continues to pursue a travel ban that, that U.S. courts have read as a ban targeting specifically the Muslim faith. So, so how, does, how does not just the street in the region, but how do Arab leaders rectify this, we're going to reject rigid thinking with policies that the president is pursuing today? Well, if the goal is to reach out to the Muslim populations, people around the world, as President Obama tried to do in Cairo, it requires a very different approach. You have to address what are the concerns of the Muslims in various parts of the Muslim world. But I think the president is trying to walk a very fine balance of talking to his base in the United States, of talking tough about terrorism, extremism, asking Muslims to reform their religion. These are not going to be welcome arguments in the Muslim world. Uh, they, uh, there is a lot of suspicion about his intentions, uh, his actions so far, his comments around uh, during the campaign have not been well received in the Muslim world. And there is a lot of fear in the Muslim world that ultimately the United States policy is going to be aimed uh, in the direction of uh, their religion, their values, their culture. And the fact that he's gone to Saudi Arabia, that he's making a big strategic alliance with Saudi Arabia, does not alleviate those uh, uh, feelings. And I think a lot of the Muslim leaders who have showed up in Saudi Arabia have worries in their own country that their streets are unhappy that there are certain expectations that they, since they have showed up in Saudi Arabia, that they would be able to impact the approach of Trump and his administrations towards the Muslim world. They will go back to their countries, essentially having to explain that they showed up to give Trump the pomp and ceremony that he wanted, but that nothing has really changed, that this president came to Saudi Arabia to read the right act to the Muslim world, to explain to the Muslims what their religion is and to tell them that they need to change, but that the United States is not prepared to even address or recognize the issues that matter to them. So, so I don't think this is going to have any kind of an impact on the mood in the Muslim world. And it's going to get many of those 50 world leaders uh, into greater political trouble when they go back home. Hmm. Elliot Abrams, uh, tucked into that uh, excerpt from the speech we just mentioned there a rejection donald trump in this speech we will see gradual reforms not sudden intervention of course president trump has often criticized the the iraq war that's an essential part of his message as well right that, that we will not be sending legions of american forces uh, no change no nation building no change by invasion in effect if that were all he were saying I'd be fine with it, but I think he's actually saying more, which is we're not very much interested in reform. He's talking to rulers, very few of whom, just a couple, have actually been chosen by the people of their countries. 
I think there's a real problem here in a kind of abandonment of some things he doesn't mention in the speech. Human rights, yeah. uh, democracy, freedom, liberty, choose your term. But what he doesn't ask in this speech is, where's all this extremism coming from? We're against it. We're going to join together to fight it. But what's our um, theory of it? Why now? What's happening in the Islamic world? The answer can't just be uh, jailing everybody. And the president doesn't provide an explanation for why there is so much extremism in the Islamist world and how we can address it other than militarily. And I think that's, uh, that's unfortunate. When he says we're not, you know, not going to push reform, I think that's actually exactly the wrong message. Mm. Because many Arabs would tell you, many Muslims would tell you, that it's the repression, it's the lack of uh, popular sovereignty, lack of freedom that feeds this kind of extremism. Robin, it's a great point Elliot Abrams makes there. And this is something that we've seen from readouts of the president's meetings with other Arab leaders, whether it's the Egyptian leader, uh, he met with the Bahraini king here, places, countries that are, are extremely repressive, no push whatsoever uh, from the U.S. And as I'm watching this scene here, and I wonder if you have the same reaction as well, a grand Saudi palace room here, uh, a vision of privilege and wealth and money, and I imagine separation from uh, the street, as it were, as, as they watch this and they listen for a message that's directed at them. It's a very interesting point, and you wonder what the average Saudi is, thinks of all of this as well. Remember that there is a very serious unemployment problem, even in oil-rich Saudi Arabia, where a third of its young population is unemployed. Uh, the one thing that's striking about the speech is that the tenor is, in many ways, very much like the speech that President Obama gave uh, in Cairo, and very much like the speech President Bush made at the Islamic Center shortly after the 9-11 attacks, that it's outreach to the Islamic world. What is so distinct about it and different is that uh, President Bush engaged in what he thought was nation-building, trying to push a democratic agenda. President Obama, uh, along, as, along with outreach to the Islamic world, also had a pretty tough message about equal rights and uh, promotion of democracy, and that is what is really missing. This is a speech that basically buys into the systems in the Middle East. As we're, you can see there, President Trump has entered the room there. Behind him, his daughter Ivanka, his son-in-law Jared Kushner along for the trip. Uh, the president will be speaking shortly, and when he does begin to speak, we will, we will go to him. Uh, Vali Nasser, I'm just going to play or show rather another excerpt from the president's speech. He will say this is not a battle between different faiths, different sects or different civilizations. This is a battle between barbaric criminals who seek to obliterate human life and decent people of all religions who seek to protect it. This is a battle between good and evil. Uh, echoes of the axis of evil as, as I first read that there as well. But really the point he's making here is that uh, Different, we're, we're of different faiths, but we're all against the extremists there. Uh, again, is this a message that will resonate? Well, this is just a uh, phraseology. It's actually a throwback to the Bush era. Uh, you know, uh, at a high level, everybody can agree that we are opposed to terrorism. But as Elliot said, uh, the people want to know, uh, how are you going to eradicate extremism? What do you mean by extremism? Who fits into that category? 
Uh, are we going to address the underlying issues that, that generates uh, extremism? Uh, we are happy to fight against ISIS and join forces to do that, although many of the Arab leaders that are gathered uh, in that uh, room are more concerned with Iran than they are concerned with ISIS. But then how are we going to address the larger issues of this region, unemployment, freedom, even reconstruction of Iraq and Syria? And, and also this kind of a rhetoric puts the burden of everything on the Muslims themselves. That is really up to you to change your religion to America's liking. And that part of it doesn't really go well. People don't like to be lectured on how they need to interpret their religion or, or whether or not they should be opposed to extremism. In fact, most Muslims say that they are opposed to extremism. They're the ones who suffer from it. More Muslims have been killed by Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS than Westerners. And so there is a certain degree of disconnect when an American president takes this attitude as if the Muslims don't care about extremism, as if they have not been fighting extremism, as if they have not suffered under extremism. And, and, I, and I don't think that's a sort of a, uh, I would say, is a condescending message that sounds like we can all rally together, but it doesn't really uh, acknowledge uh, where the Muslim world is on this issue right now. Elliot Abrams, the first line here, the president says this is not a battle between different faiths, different sects, different civilizations. Fact is, it is a battle between different sects, is it not? I mean, you have the, the Sunni majority Saudi Arabia aligned against the Shia majority Iran, uh, fighting each other openly and in effect a proxy war in Yemen and in Saudi and in Syria as well. Is that not today uh, in reality one of the biggest fissures between Sunni and Shia? It is, but I think the president is really uh, trying to avoid getting in, into that battle. And anyway, what's happening in Yemen is not really a religious fight. It's a national fight, Saudi Arabia versus Iran. To the extent that there is a, a problem with a sect here, it's one the president's not going to mention because he's in Saudi Arabia. And that is that a kind of gateway drug to extremism has been the Wahhabi Islam that Saudi Arabia is frankly pushing throughout the Muslim world. This has been a huge problem. I hear complaints from Muslims all over North Africa, uh, the Balkans, Southeast Asia, that the Saudis are spending tons of money trying to push out their indigenous forms of Islam, which are pretty moderate, and say, this is all heretical. Only Wahhabi Islam is authentic Islam. And so they are, in a sense, feeding extremism. Now, it's too much to expect the president to say that while he's in Saudi Arabia, but it is a huge problem. And it's something that I hope he is at least saying to them privately. Uh, it, it's really in the Islamic world, driving out moderate forms of Islam. And it's been doing that for decades now. And it is one of the reasons for the rise of extremism. As we were seeing there, and we get ready, you can see Wilbur Ross, the president's commerce secretary, there over his shoulder. Uh, his wife, Melania, traveled on this trip. And that's, of course, Ryan's Priebus, the chief of staff. So, so, so quite a show of force uh, in, in the Trump administration on the president's first overseas trip. Uh, Robin Wright, uh, of course, as this is happening, enormous controversy here at home for the president. Uh, a special counsel appointed this week. New revelations uh, about the Russia investigation. How much is that on the minds of the people he's meeting with there? Do they see a weakened American president as he makes his first overseas trip? 
Well, they certainly will understand that uh, Donald Trump faces a lot of problems when he comes home. And one of the big questions is, how much do they want to invest in him long term? Now, the Saudis have made a huge commitment in, in buying not just $110 billion worth of American arms, but making a decade-long commitment to buy $350 billion more of uh, American materiel. Uh, so I think some of the, the most hardcore um, uh, Gulf regimes are, are likely to stick with the United States because that is where they see their security long term. They see the United States as their um, protector, the, the kind of policeman, the military force they can use in case there is some kind of conflict or tension, serious, more serious tension with Iran. Uh, but, you know, this is something that the president will revel in the kind of greetings he's had in the kingdom. But this is a nine-day trip, and when he comes home, uh, the headlines will be just as tough on him as when on the day he left. And in fact, when he comes home, just after Labor, after Memorial Day, rather, we expect the FBI director. He fired to speak in public before the Senate Intelligence Committee, perhaps contradicting the president uh, on their meeting in the Oval Office. Uh, seated to the president's right, you've seen there is is the Saudi king, uh, King Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud, the king of Saudi Arabia. He's going to give a few minutes of comments before the president then speaks, uh, and you're hearing now a prayer, a Muslim prayer uh, that typically precedes uh, speeches, certainly by, by uh, Saudi leaders. Uh, before the comments begin, Vali, if I could ask you, of course, there's been a momentous election in Iran uh, just in the last 24 hours. We know that the, the moderate uh, Hassan Rouhani has been reelected by a large margin. How do the Iranians view this trip? A president of the United States making his first overseas trip, Saudi Arabia, Iran's sworn enemy. Do they see that as uh, raising tensions? I think they're worried. They are worried that uh, the United States has shifted from where the Obama administration was uh, to uh, where the Bush administration had been, that it's now re returning to a policy of containment of Iran that there might be uh, some degree of, in fact, a direct confrontation between United States and Iran, uh, and that the sanctions gains that they got from the nuclear deal may be unraveled. All of this worries them. But they're also worried that uh, given the president's troubles at home, that there might be an appetite now for pursuing adventure abroad in order to distract attention from uh, what's happening in Washington. And so many, many Iran I've talked to are, are think that uh, a tight relationship with Saudi Arabia may be a prelude for some kind of a military action against Iran. And, and, and I think that helped Rouhani in some ways because Iranians decided that they need a moderate at the helm rather than a conservative, which would actually make it much easier for a Saudi-American alliance to take Iran on. Mm. And $110 billion in U.S. arms uh, sold on this trip, brokered, we've been told, it's been reported uh, to some degree by Jared Kushner, the president's uh, son-in-law. That is King Salman speaking there as well. We understand he'll give a few minutes of comments. And then the president expected to speak. His, his comments expected to be 15 minutes or so. As soon as he starts, we will, we will listen in. Uh, we have Thomas Erdbrink. Uh, on the line from Tehran. He is the New York Times correspondent in Tehran. Thomas, uh, celebrations in the streets. We've been seeing last night uh, Rouhani's supporters. What are you hearing from Tehran as President Trump makes his first overseas visit and chooses Saudi Arabia? 
well, they were pretty sure that they, he wouldn't be choosing Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that aside, I think uh, I think the Iranians are um, are not that surprised that President Trump is visiting uh, the, the Saudis. After all, they are an old and decade-long uh, ally of the United States. So the Iranians knew what they were in for. At the same time, we had the celebrations here on the streets last night. People um, uh, were engaged in, in, in weeks of campaigning, which is sort of accumulated in this massive pour out of people, not only in Tehran, but in all major cities here in Iran. People came out on the streets to celebrate the victory of this so-called moderate president, President Rouhani, and the, the liveliness and also the level of openness that, uh, that we've experienced in these uh, elections have been pretty remarkable. Uh, people have been calling for the release of opposition leaders, um, you know, the names that normally are taboos here in Iranian politics. Um, people have come out and, and spoken out against hardliners. It is very hard and clear for the Iranians that if this was an election first, but second also a referendum on the sort of ideology they want here. And the answer of the Iranian people is very clear. They want moderation, good relations with the outside world, and more freedoms inside their country. Elliot Abrams, of course, President Trump spoke during the campaign of tearing up the Iranian nuclear deal. But just again last week, he signed a waiver on sanctions, which is part of the process, in effect, continuing uh, the loosening of these sanctions as Iran continues to to meet the terms of the deal. Is that going to change during the Trump presidency? I think it depends partly on Iranian uh, behavior, of course. Uh, I wouldn't say he loosened the sanctions. I mean, there was some tightening of of um, ancillary sanctions, let's call them. Missile related, but not nuclear. Uh, but not nuclear. No, I mean, it's pretty clear that whatever the president said during the campaign, the nuclear deal is going to stay in place unless and until uh, Iranian behavior changes. Uh, and it may not. Um, but I think it was, a, as your correspondent was saying, it was a very interesting, clear, convincing victory by Rouhani. No effort by the supreme leader to fiddle with the result, as has been the case in previous elections sometimes. And the question now is whether uh, Rouhani can actually deliver the economic improvements that he's been talking about and a loosening of the system. Because um, as Mr. Erdbrink said, he really made some interesting criticisms of the Iranian system while he was running for president. Uh, criticisms of the Revolutionary Guard, for example. So the question now is what really can he deliver in his second term as president? Again, we're watching and listening to King Salman, uh, the Saudi leader there, uh, who's giving a few comments, a few minutes of comments before President Trump speaks. And when President Trump speaks, we're going to go right to him. Uh, Robin Wright, uh, as you again, I'm struck just by the, the vision here of the Saudi leader, the American leader there seated in what looked like thrones. Of course, the Saudi people are used to this kind of pomp and circumstance. But but the separation between this scene and what are the number one concerns of people, whether it's the Saudi street, street or the Iranian street or elsewhere in the region, following all the upheaval of the Arab Spring? Well, the, the thing that is most striking is that you have this opulent center uh, in the kingdom and versus where there are no real basic human rights provisions for individuals, particularly for women. And yesterday, Secretary of State Tillerson was standing next to the Saudi foreign minister, and they were criticizing Iran for the lack of freedom. 
This in a country that just had a, an election where 73 percent of the people turned out, had four candidates to choose from, a controlled election for sure, but still there is a democratic process with a, a, a heavily controlled, but uh, much more democratic than Saudi Arabia. And so this contrast, I think this... It, for us, uh, we notice it fleetingly. For those in the Middle East, they notice the real contrast. And uh, the fact that there is a, a country, the largest country in the, uh, in the Persian Gulf area, that does allow people to vote versus the Gulf shakedoms, where there are very limited rights, very uh, limited electoral system. Some do have parliaments, but um, they don't have necessarily the powers of a traditional parliament. And so the scene we're seeing today is going to resonate. Uh, I remember being in Saudi Arabia in 1981 for a meeting of the, the six Gulf governments, and there were so many roses in the room. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens just in one little vase, and there were dozens and dozens of vases across the, across the room. I mean, the opulence at a time of real economic hardship, at a time the region is torn by wars, where in Syria you have um, more than half the population desperate for international aid just to get their daily bread, where the destruction in because of wars, where the lack of electricity is pervasive. Country from Gaza, where they have two to four hours a day, to Iraq, oil-rich, has eight or nine hours a day. Lebanon, they're only uh, half a day, they don't have electricity. There are these core problems, infrastructure, uh, economic, employment, uh, the youth dynamic that is changing the demographics across the region. This is a time, uh, a commute, a part of the world that is totally out of sync with the kind of pictures we're seeing uh, surrounding President Trump today. Jim, Finally, if I nice. could uh, please, make a please, comment go, go on ahead. what we're seeing. Go ahead, uh, Elliot. Two things. First, the president's grim. Um, we've been watching him now for about half an hour on and off, and he hasn't smiled yet. I don't know, it was a bad night's sleep or what. But it's been remarkable to watch his very, very serious, I would even say grim, um, facial expression. Hmm. Secondly, Perhaps. the king is um, being very active here this whole weekend. If you go back a year or two when he became king, people were saying that, frankly, he was suffering from dementia and he couldn't function as king. But we've seen him in the last few days uh, fully functional. And I think this will actually have an impact within Saudi Arabia in kind of knocking off those uh, rumors because you, you see him there. You saw him all morning greeting 50 uh, Muslim heads of government and heads of state. You see him reading this speech without any apparent difficulty. Uh, so I think that, that also has an impact. No, that, it, is, it is a great point because those, those questions about his health, his, his mental sharpness, uh, as you say, started the moment that he acceded to the throne, but this is quite a long speech, and you have to imagine this is uh, beyond having an audience uh, the ears of the American president. This is, this is an audience uh, among Saudis and really for the, for the region there. Uh, Valinas, if you could just help characterize the level of attention now between Iran uh, and Saudi Arabia. In effect, they're fighting two proxy wars in Syria and in Yemen. What are the chances of actual direct conflict? Well, I mean, if you listen to what the Saudi king is saying, uh, much of his speech is about Iran and actually blaming Iran for global terrorism, uh, blaming it going all the way back to the Khomeini period. 
Uh, I think tensions are very high. There have been some kind of a accommodation over Iranians going back for Hajj. So they had some negotiations about that. But I think the Iranians have adopted the very, uh, sorry, the Saudis have adopted a very hardline position on Iran since Trump became president, ruling out any notion of a conversation with Iran, any dialogue, uh, and making no distinction between the moderate president and, and the hardline revolutionary guards. I don't think they want a direct confrontation with Iran, although the $110 billion arms deal will probably set up some kind of a uh, regional arms race between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia. Iranians are not talking about buying weapons from Russia, from building their missile program uh, to, to counteract this, this kind of a deal. But I think the Saudis are most interested to ally with the United States to push hard against Iran in, in Yemen and then also to uh, check Iran's uh, capabilities in Syria. For instance, they would very much welcome the, uh, the air attack that the United States carried out on a convoy of, of fighters that were backed by Iran in, in southeastern Syria. Uh, so they would like to continue the proxy war now with much more direct American involvement and American backing, not just diplomatic backing, but also some degree of American military involvement. Uh, that's a decision that Washington has to make uh, in terms of how much they want to get involved in this direct confrontation and how much they want to encourage the Saudis to pursue a confrontational policy with Iran. The big difference with the Obama administration is that towards the end, the Obama administration was aggressively encouraging the Saudis to talk to Iran. And the Saudis uh, felt a lot of pressure that at least they have to go through the motions of accepting a letter from Rouhani to the uh, Gulf countries and allowing the Gulf countries to respond, now they feel no pressure to talk to Iran. And in fact, they see a lot more room to, to have a much more direct confrontational policy. It also depends a lot on how Iran will respond in Yemen, in Iraq, and in Syria against the Saudi position. So we may see an escalation. It's going to happen in Yemen, in Syria, and, and in Iraq first. I don't think there's, there's a chance of, of a direct confrontation between the two countries because their military capabilities are quite mismatched. The Saudis have a great deal of air capability, missiles, whereas the Iranians uh, are, are, have a much more of an underground capability. They're not likely to invade the Saudis, Saudi Arabia, and I don't think the Saudis are planning an air campaign against Iran anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And, and we should remind our viewers that, that Iranians have ground forces very active in Iraq uh, and in Syria, uh, and, and a lot of them losing their lives. Uh, the king has finished his comments. This is the time when we expect President Trump to make his own comments there. As Vali noted, a big portion of the king's speech targeting Iran. Iran is the source of instability in the region. That a message that is certainly uh, similar to what... President Trump has said both on the campaign trail, but, but since he's become president, one that I imagine uh, he will agree with and perhaps echo in his comments. President Trump about to give his comments here. Looks like he'll be doing them standing from the podium. Teleprompter. Thank you. Let's listen. I would like to thank King Solomon for his extraordinary words and the magnificent kingdom of Saudi Arabia for hosting today's summit. I am honored to be received by such gracious hosts. 
I have always heard about the splendor of your country and the kindness of your citizens. But words do not do justice to the grandeur of this remarkable place and the incredible hospitality you have shown us from the moment we arrived. You also hosted me in the treasured home of King Abdul Aziz, the founder of the kingdom who united your great people. Working alongside of another beloved leader, American President Franklin Roosevelt, King Abdul Aziz began the enduring partnership between our two countries. King Solomon, your father would be very, very proud to see that you are continuing his legacy. And just as he opened the first chapter of our partnership, today we begin a new chapter that will bring lasting benefits to all of our citizens. Let me now also extend my deep and heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of the distinguished heads of state who made this journey here today. You greatly honor us with your presence, and I send the warmest regards from my country to yours. Thank you. I know that our time together will bring many blessings to both your people and to mine. I stand before you as a representative of the American people to deliver a message of friendship and hope and love. That is why I chose to make my first foreign visit a trip to the heart of the Muslim world, to the nation that serves as custodian of the two holiest sites in the Islamic faith. In my inaugural address to the American people, I pledge to strengthen America's oldest friendships and to build new partnerships in pursuit of peace. I also promise that America will not seek to impose our way of life on others, but to outstretch our hands in the spirit of cooperation and trust. Our vision is one of peace security and prosperity in this region and all throughout the world. Our goal is a coalition of nations who share the aim of stamping out extremism and providing our children a hopeful future that does honor to God. And so this historic and unprecedented gathering of leaders unique in the history of nations, is a symbol to the world of our shared resolve in our military that will protect the safety of our people and enhance security and made record investments in our military that will protect the safety of our people and enhance the security of our wonderful friends and allies many of whom are here for 
closer bonds of friendship, security, culture, and commerce. For Americans, this is a very exciting time. A new spirit of optimism is sweeping our country. In just a few months, we have created almost a million new jobs, added over $3 trillion in new value, lifted the burdens on American industry, and made record investments in our military that will protect the safety of our people and enhance the security of our wonderful friends and allies, many of whom are here today. Now, there is even more blessed news that I am pleased to share with you. My meetings with King Solomon, the Crown Prince, and the Deputy Crown Prince have been filled with great warmth, goodwill, and tremendous cooperation. Yesterday, we signed historic agreements with the Kingdom that will invest almost $400 billion in our two countries and create many hundreds of thousands of jobs in America and Saudi Arabia. This landmark agreement includes the announcement of a $110 billion Saudi-funded defense purchase. And we will be sure to help our Saudi friends to get a good deal from our great American defense companies, the greatest anywhere in the world. This agreement will help the Saudi military to take a far greater role in security and operations having to do with security. We have also started discussions with many of the countries present today on strengthening partnerships and forming new ones to advance security and stability across the Middle East and far beyond. Later today, we will make history again with the opening of the new Global Center for Combating Extremist Ideology, located right here in this central part of the Islamic world. This groundbreaking new center represents a clear declaration that Muslim-majority countries must take the lead in combating radicalization. And I want to express our gratitude to King Salman for his strong demonstration and his absolutely incredible and powerful leadership. I have had the pleasure of welcoming several of the leaders present today to the White House. And I look forward to working with all of you. America is a sovereign nation, and our first priority is always the safety and security of our citizens. We are not here to lecture. We are not here to tell other people how to live, what to do, who to be, or how to worship. Instead, we are here to offer partnership based on shared interests and values to pursue a better future. Here at this summit, we will discuss But above all, we must be united in pursuing the one goal that transcends every other consideration. That goal is to meet history's great test 
to conquer extremism and vanquish the forces that terrorism brings with it every single time. Young Muslim boys and girls should be able to grow up free from fear, safe from violence, and innocent of hatred. When young Muslim men and women should have the chance to build a new era of prosperity for themselves, it has to be done, and we have to let them do it. With God's help, this summit will mark the beginning of the end for those who practice terror and spread its vile creed. At the same time, we pray this special gathering may someday be remembered as the beginning of peace in the Middle East and maybe even all over the world. But this future can only be achieved through defeating terrorism and the ideology that drives it. Few nations have been spared the violent reach of terrorism. America has suffered repeated barbaric attacks from the atrocities of September 11th to the devastation of the Boston bombings to the horrible killings in San Bernardino and Orlando. The nations of Europe have also endured unspeakable horror. So too have the nations of Africa and South America. India, Russia, China, and Australia have all been victims. But in sheer numbers, the deadliest toll has been exacted on the innocent people of Arab, Muslim, and Middle Eastern nations. They have borne the brunt of the killings and the worst of the destruction in this wave of fanatical violence. Some estimates hold that more than 95% of the victims of terrorism are themselves Muslim. We now face a humanitarian and security disaster in this region that is spreading across the planet. It is a tragedy of epic proportions. No description of the suffering and depravity can begin to capture its full measure. The true troll of ISIS, if you look at what's happening, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Hamas, and so many others must be counted not only in the number of dead, it also must be counted in generations of vanished dreams. The Middle East is rich with natural beauty, vibrant cultures, and massive amounts of historic treasures. It should increasingly become one of the great global centers of commerce and opportunity. This region should not be a place from which refugees flee, but to which newcomers flock. Saudi Arabia is home to the holiest sites in one of the world's great faiths. Each year, millions of Muslims come from around the world to Saudi Arabia to take part in the Hajj. In addition to ancient wonders, this country is also home to modern ones, including soaring achievements in architecture. Egypt was a thriving center of learning and achievement 
thousands of years before other parts of the world. The wonders of Giza, Luxor, and Alexandria are proud monuments to that ancient heritage. All over the world, people dream of walking through the ruins of Petra in Jordan. Iraq was the cradle of civilization and is a land of natural beauty. And the United Arab Emirates has reached incredible heights with glass and steel and turned earth and water into spectacular works of art. The entire region is at the center of the key shipping lanes of the Suez Canal, the Red Sea, and the Straits of Hormoz. The potential of this region has never, ever been greater. 65% of its population is under the age of 30. Like all young men and women, they seek great futures to build, great national projects to join, and a place for their families to call home. But this untapped potential, this tremendous cause of optimism, is held at bay by bloodshed and terror. There can be no coexistence with this violence. There can be no tolerating it, no accepting it, no excusing it, and no ignoring it. Every time a terrorist murders an innocent person and falsely invokes the name of God, it should be an insult to every person of faith. Terrorists do not worship God. They worship death. If we do not act against this organized terror, then we know what will happen and what will be the end result. Terrorism's devastation of life will continue to spread. Peaceful societies will become engulfed by violence. And the futures of many generations will be sadly squandered. If we do not stand in uniform condemnation of this killing, then not only will we be judged by our people, not only will we be judged by history, but we will be judged by God. This is not a battle between different faiths, different sects, or different civilizations. This is a battle between barbaric criminals who seek to obliterate human life and decent people, all in the name of religion. People that want to protect life and want to protect their religion. This is a battle between good and evil. When we see the scenes of destruction in the wake of terror, we see no signs that those murdered were Jewish or Christian, Shia or Sunni. When we look upon the strains of innocent blood soaked into the ancient ground, we cannot see the faith or sect or tribe of the victims. We see only that they were children of God whose deaths are an insult to all that is holy. But we can only overcome this evil if the forces of good are united and strong. 
And if everyone in this room does their fair share and fulfills their part of the burden, terrorism has spread all across the world. But the path to peace begins right here on this ancient soil in this sacred land. America is prepared to stand with you in pursuit of shared interests and common security. But the nations of the Middle East cannot wait for American power to crush this enemy for them. The nations of the Middle East will have to decide what kind of future they want for themselves, for their country, and frankly, for their families and for their children. It's a choice between two futures, and it is a choice America cannot make for you. A better future is only possible if your nations drive out the terrorists and drive out the extremists. Drive them out. Drive them out of your places of worship. Drive them out of your communities. Drive them out of your holy land. And drive them out of this earth. For our part, America is committed to adjusting our strategies to meet evolving threats and new facts. We will discard those strategies that have not worked and will apply new approaches informed by experience, talent, and judgment. We are adopting a principled realism rooted in common values, shared interests, and common sense. Our friends will never question our support, and our enemies will never doubt our determination. Our partnerships will advance security through stability, not through radical disruption. We will make decisions based on real-world outcomes, not inflexible ideology. We will be guided by the lessons of experience, not the confines of rigid thinking. And wherever possible, we will seek gradual reforms, not sudden intervention. We must seek partners, not perfection, and to make allies of all who share our goals. Above all, America seeks peace, not war. Muslim nations must be willing to take on the burden if we are going to defeat terrorism and send its wicked ideology into oblivion. The first task in this joint effort is for your nations to deny all territory to the foot soldiers of evil. Every country in the region has an absolute duty to ensure that terrorists find no sanctuary on their soil. Many are already making significant contributions to regional security. Jordanian pilots are crucial partners against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Saudi Arabia and a regional coalition have taken strong action against Houthi militants in Yemen. The Lebanese army is hunting ISIS operatives who try to infiltrate their territory. Emirati troops are supporting our Afghan partners and supporting them strongly. In Mosul, American troops are supporting Kurds, 
Sunnis and Shias fighting together for their homeland. Qatar, which hosts the U.S. Central Command, is a crucial strategic partner. Our long-standing partnership with Kuwait and Bahrain continue to enhance security in the region. Our courageous Afghan soldiers are making tremendous sacrifices in the fight against the Taliban and others in the fight for their country. As we deny terrorist organization control of territory and populations, we must also strip them of their access to funds. We must cut off the financial channels that let ISIS sell oil, let extremists pay their fighters, and help terrorists smuggle their reinforcements. I am proud to announce that the nations here today will be signing an agreement to prevent the financing of terrorism called the Terrorist Financing Targeting Center, co-chaired by the United States and Saudi Arabia, and joined by every member of the Gulf Cooperation Council. It is another historic step in a day that will be long remembered. I also applaud the Gulf Cooperation Council for blocking funders from using their countries as a financial base for terror and for designating Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, which they certainly are, last year. Saudi Arabia also joined us this week in placing sanctions on one of the most senior leaders of Hezbollah. Of course, there is still much work to be done. That means honestly confronting the crisis of Islamic extremism and the Islamists and Islamic terror of all kinds. We must stop what they're doing to inspire because they do nothing to inspire but kill. And we are having a very profound effect if you look at what's happened recently. And it means standing together against the murder of innocent Muslims, the oppression of women, the persecution of Jews, and the slaughter of Christians. Religious leaders must make this absolutely clear. Barbarism will deliver you no glory. Piety to evil will bring you no dignity. If you choose the path of terror, your life will be empty, your life will be brief, and your soul will be fully condemned. And political leaders must speak out to affirm the same idea. Heroes don't kill innocents, they save them. Many nations here today have taken important steps to raise up that message. Saudi Arabia's vision for 2030 is an important and encouraging statement of tolerance, respect, empowering women, and economic development. The United Arab Emirates has also engaged in the battle for the hearts and souls, and with the United States launched a center to counter the online spread of hate. Bahrain, too, is working to undermine recruitment and radicalism. 
I also applaud Jordan, Turkey, and Lebanon for their role in hosting refugees. The surge of migrants and refugees living and just living so poorly that they're forced to leave the Middle East depletes the human capital needed to build stable societies and economies. Instead of depriving this region of so much human potential, Middle Eastern countries can give young people hope for a brighter future in their home nations and regions. That means promoting the aspirations and dreams of all citizens who seek a better life, including women, children, and the followers of all faiths. Numerous Arab and Islamic scholars have eloquently argued that protecting equality strengthens Arab and Muslim communities. For many centuries, the Middle East has been home to Christians, Muslims, and Jews living side by side. We must practice tolerance and respect for each other once again and make this region a place where every man and woman, no matter their faith or ethnicity, can enjoy a life of dignity and hope. In that spirit, after concluding my reserve in a fabulous place that we're at today, Riyadh, which I've gotten to know so well in so short a time, I will travel to Jerusalem and Bethlehem and then to the Vatican, visiting many of the holiest places in the three Abrahamic faiths. If these three faiths can join together in cooperation, then peace in this world is possible, including peace between Israelis and Palestinians. I will be meeting with both Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Palestinian President Abbas. Starving terrorists of their territory, of their funding, and the false allure of the craven ideology will be the basis for easily defeating them. But no discussion of stamping out this threat would be complete without mentioning the government that gives terrorists all three safe harbor, financial backing, and the social standing needed for recruitment. It is a regime that is responsible for so much instability in that region. I am speaking, of course, of Iran. From Lebanon to Iraq to Yemen, Iran funds arms and trains terrorists, militias, and other extremist groups that spread destruction and chaos across the region. For decades, Iran has fueled the fires of sectarian conflict and terror. It is a government that speaks openly of mass murder, vowing the destruction of Israel, death to America, and ruin for many leaders and nations in this very room. Among Iran's most tragic and destabilizing interventions. You've seen it in Syria. Bolstered by Iran, Assad has committed unspeakable crimes 
And the United States has taken firm action in response to the use of banned chemical weapons by the Assad regime, launching 59 missiles at the Syrian airbase from where that murderous attack originated. Responsible nations must work together to end the humanitarian crisis in Syria, eradicate ISIS, and restore stability to the region and as quickly as possible. The Iranian regime's longest suffering victims are its own people. Iran has a rich history and culture, but the people of Iran have endured hardship and despair under their leader's reckless pursuit of conflict and terror. Until the Iranian regime is willing to be a partner for peace, all nations of conscience must work together to isolate Iran, deny it. Funding for terrorism cannot do it. And pray for the day when the Iranian people have the just and righteous government they so richly deserve. The decisions we make will affect countless lives. King Solomon, I thank you for the creation of this great moment in history and for your massive investments in America and its industries and its jobs. I also thank you for investing in the future of this part of the world, the fertile region, and it is so fertile, has all of the ingredients for extraordinary success. A rich history and culture, a young and vibrant people, a thriving spirit of enterprise. But you can only unlock this future if the citizens of the Middle East are freed from extremism, terror, and violence. We in this room are the leaders of our peoples. They look to us for answers and for action. And when we look back at their faces, behind every pair of eyes is a soul that yearns for justice and yearns for peace. Today, billions of faces are now looking at us, waiting for us to act on the great question of our time. Will we be indifferent in the presence of evil? Will we protect our citizens from its violent ideology? Will we let its venom spread through our societies? Will we let it destroy the most holy sites on earth? If we do not confront this deadly terror, we know what the future will bring. More suffering, more death, and more despair. But if we act, if we leave this magnificent room unified and determined to do what it takes to destroy the terror that threatens the world, then there is no limit to the great future our citizens will have. The birthplace of civilization is waiting to begin a new renaissance. Just imagine what tomorrow could bring. Glorious wonders, 
of science, art, medicine, and commerce to inspire mankind. Great cities built on the ruins of shattered towns. New jobs and industries that will lift up millions and millions of people. Parents who no longer worry for their children, their families, and who no longer mourn for their loved ones. And the faithful who finally worship without fear. These are the blessings of prosperity and peace. These are the desires that burn with a righteous flame in every single human heart. And these are the just demands of our beloved people. I ask you to join me, to join together, to work together, and to fight together, because united, we will not fail. We cannot fail. Nobody, absolutely nobody, can beat us. Thank you. God bless you. God bless your countries. And God bless the United States of America. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening there to President Trump delivering a much anticipated speech uh, next to the Saudi king in front of the leaders of some 55 countries in the region. Quite a remarkable speech, very much to script. He was following uh, the teleprompter throughout. And I would say something of an ambitious speech. Uh, It started with the phrase, we will outstretch our hands, perhaps echoing President Obama's speech in Cairo in 2009, where he spoke of America unclenching its fist. But President Trump's speech taking much of a turn after that, quite a tough one, a tough message for the leaders in the audience, perhaps for the Muslim people as well, saying repeatedly, it is your responsibility to stamp out extremism. Uh, he had this line, which, which might be the signature line of the speech, saying, drive them out, drive them out of places of worship, drive them out of the Holy Land, drive them out of this earth, speaking of the extremists and ending, uh, perhaps on a more positive note, speaking of the possibility of a new renaissance in the region once extremism is confronted. I'm joined again now by Elliot Abrams, Vali Nasr, Robin Wright in Tehran. We have the New York Times correspondent, Thomas Erdbrink, and in Riyadh, we have seen in senior White House correspondent Jeff Zeleny. Uh, I want to go to the panel first. Robin Wright, your reactions. Well, I thought one of the things that was most striking was that he takes a military approach to dealing with extremism, whether it's arming uh, the Saudis, talking about uh, the security arrangements that the Arab countries have to take in dealing with extremism to, as you pointed out, drive them out, drive them out. And he doesn't really deal with the kind of broader issues. And the irony is he talks so much about the jobs created by these arms sales to the Saudis because jobs are so important in the United States. And he doesn't re- reflect on the fact that it is in many ways a jobs issue inside many of these countries, too, that have led people to either uh, dissent from their governments or join extremist movements. And he doesn't kind of make that connection. I think the other thing that was really striking was at the very end of the speech when he talked about Iran, and he, he's equating Iran and ISIS and al-Qaeda in a way that is, is it's apples and oranges, um, uh, and maybe even pears. It's, uh, he talks about that Iran's uh, people are its longest suffering victims when, ironically, just two days ago, 73% of the Iranian people got out and voted 
for a new president. Uh, and he talked almost about regime change, that until uh, Iran was willing, uh, until Iran has a government that is willing to deal uh, with the outside world as if it involves a change of government, which is a, a radical shift from the positions of uh, the last several U.S. presidents. So the, the tone was very strident. He also said that he wasn't going to lecture to uh, the assembled leaders, but in fact, that's exactly what he did. A very tough message. He challenged them, really. Valinas, it's, it's not that simple, is it? Because extremists, uh, even what we identify as terrorists, uh, are backed in some of these conflicts by some of the very leaders in that room. If you look at Syria, for instance, there, there are groups that the U.S. identify as terrorists on the ground there that have received uh, Saudi backing in, in that conflict. How do you see this message received by the leaders in the room? Well, I think there are two groups of uh, leaders in the room. Uh, there are those who uh, welcome the notion of drive them out because they would see that as a free hand to put all of their opposition in prison, uh, accusing of being Islamic extremists. For instance, you could look at Egypt, who has defined the Muslim Brotherhood being a terrorist organization. So they would basically see uh, that the United States is not interested in human rights and uh, would not object to uh, putting larger numbers of opposition in prison under the uh, banner that they're all Islamic extremists. And then there are other leaders in the room, uh, and as well as, also, I think, a segment of the Muslim population who's fed up with extremism, who's, who's listening to this speech, and they would see that the president was really giving a lot of heat to, to Saudi Arabia and also ve ve the wealthy uh, class in the Gulf that has been funding not only terrorists, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other outfits, but also, have, as Elliot said earlier, have been funding the, the spread of extremism in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in Europe, in the United States, by, by giving funding to radical imams and much more hardline interpretations of, of, of Islam. So I think the leader of Indonesia, for instance, or uh, uh, leaders from Africa, who were sitting in the room may say, well, that's great. The United States is finally reading the right act to Saudi Arabia and, and, and other Gulf countries and Gulf leaders who've been supporting extremism. He's, he's, putting, he's putting them in on, on the hot spot of saying, okay, we're building this alliance from er, around extremism. I'm gonna do what you want with Iran, and I included them in my, my speech. Now you need to clean your house. Uh, you, you need to do what is the right thing. You need to drive these people out and you need to really fight about extremism. So I think everybody can leave this, uh, this uh, speech thinking they got what they wanted. Uh, the Saudis got an anti-Iran message. Countries like uh, uh, Egypt got a free hand to hound their opposition. And, and many others thought that they, they saw for the first time an American president in Saudi Arabia take a tough stand on those who support extremism. I did think it was a remarkable moment when you had President Trump speak of how America has suffered repeated barbaric attacks from the atrocities of 9-11 sitting next to the Saudi king. Of course, we have uh, Congress recently passed legislation allowing American families of victims of 9-11 to sue the Saudi government uh, for the possibility that there was some knowledge, perhaps support from some quarters of the government there. Elliot Abrams, you've advised American presidents, Republican presidents. Did you see President Trump's message here as consistent, uh, as a new direction for the U.S. approach to the Middle East? Generally consistent. 
<coughs> these are our allies, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, the other Gulf countries, the Emirates. Um, so I don't think there is anything uh, new here except for one thing. He is treating the terrorists as if they kind of uh, came from outer space. <laughs> and uh, we have to get our armies together and defeat them. But they didn't come from outer space. They came from inside these Muslim societies. And the president really isn't addressing that question or asking these heads of government to address that question. He's just saying, defeat them. And, and without really an explanation of what it is that gives rise to them. What are the conditions? What are the, the problems in these societies that produce so many terrorists? So I, whereas predecessors uh, frequently talked about a reform within those societies, freedom within those societies, the president said, I'm not here to lecture, though he did use the word reform. But I think we're going to have to press a lot harder to get them to look at their own societies and figure out what changes are necessary to stop. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.